0: You are listening to a message from the Living Word Community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Yeah, what what Dan didn't mention is Peru sent me back. Bruce said, go back to the place where you came from. Oh, Dan. Dan, yeah, that, that caught me a little off guard. I'm a little distracted now. International speaker. <laughs> yeah, next thing you know, it's going to be Dave or International Ministries, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, I love you, Dan. I love you, Dan. Well, it's good to be together this morning. It's always good to be able to worship the Lord together. It's good to be serious together. It's good to be able to laugh together and be a little ridiculous (laughs) together as well. Uh, As most of you are aware, we have been uh, working our way through the book of 2 Kings. And that's where we're gonna find ourselves today is in the book of 2 Kings. If you're following along on the schedule, today is 2 Kings chapter 13. Um, What we're going to do, actually, is initially look at a couple of verses that are almost identical from a couple of different places in 2 Kings, and then ultimately work our way to 2 Kings chapter 17, which we will be reading together, uh, I believe, on Thursday, on Thursday. Now, if you've been reading through 2 Kings, you realize that 2 Kings is actually a pretty sad story. Um... We had a, a terrible king in Saul, in Samuel. Then we had a pretty good king in David, also in Samuel. And then as first kings opens up, we have Solomon. And Solomon starts off very well, but unfortunately he ends very, very poorly. And as a result of his sin, uh, the kingdom of God, the people of God, are actually divided, which is just, you know unbelievably devastating. And so then as the books of first and second kings continue to tell their story, we have a divided kingdom. We have the northern kingdom of Israel and we have the southern kingdom of Judah. But to see the people of God so significantly, so completely, so thoroughly divided is really just a, a tragic, tragic story. And of course, as we see the histories of these two kingdoms unfold, we see they are primarily a history of. Rebellion against the Lord of sin and of disobedience and that that great point in human history that both of the kingdoms are heading towards is that point of captivity and that's that's unfortunately where the book of Kings takes us in in the northern kingdom they will come to an end in 722 BC as the Assyrians come in and utterly destroy the northern kingdom and take the people of God captive and at the end of the book, in Second Kings 25, it will be the empire of Babylon that comes in and takes the southern kingdom into captivity. And Judah is destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is burnt and destroyed as well. So as you're reading the account of Kings, it's, it's kind of a disappointing story. It's kind of a discouraging story. But really, that is absolutely what God intends. That is absolutely what God intends. As we know, God has put his word together perfectly. God has put his word together exactly the way he wants it to be given to us, and he wants us to receive it as he has given it. He doesn't want us to gloss over the discouraging parts or the demoralizing parts or the really tragic parts. He has put those in there for us. And again, particularly if you are reading the Old Testament, the Lord wants you to be disappointed. Doesn't matter what chapter of the Old Testament you find yourself in, he wants you to be disappointed. He wants you to have an empty feeling. He wants you to be left wanting something more. Because on the pages of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ has not yet come. And the entirety of the Old Testament is building a longing, is building an expectation, is building a hope. There has to be something better. There has to be something better. And so if you are reading First and Second Kings and you are not disappointed and you are not frustrated and you are not a bit demoralized, then you're not really capturing the heart of 1 and 2 Kings. Because as the account of Kings unfolds, Jesus hasn't come yet. And Kings should leave us all wanting Jesus to come. The account of Kings should leave us all wanting, hoping, believing that something better is going to come. And so when we read the Old Testament, we don't want to deny that. We want to embrace that. And so as we read the unraveling of the northern kingdom and as we read the unraveling of the southern kingdom yeah that is that is devastating but that's exactly what god wants us to understand that's exactly what god wants uh, us to understand because the book of kings is pushing us forward pushing us forward a better king is coming a perfect king is coming jesus christ is coming and until he comes The account of human history will be disappointment, frustration, falling short, hoping for something more. So as we continue to read Kings together, don't shy away from that. Don't shy away from that. Embrace that. And as you continue to read the Old Testament, embrace that as well. Because the Old Testament should leave us with one, one, one great longing above all else. Jesus, please come jesus please come because abraham wasn't the ultimate answer moses wasn't the ultimate answer david wasn't the ultimate answer the best of the best that the old testament has to offer us none of them were able to ultimately accomplish god's purposes they all fell short and that's exactly what god wants us to embrace And so now, all of a sudden, we're reading the Old Testament the way the Lord wants us to. We're reading the Old Testament saying, Jesus, please come. Jesus, please come. Be that perfect king. Be that perfect prophet. Be that greater son of Abraham through whom the entire world will be blessed. Be the fulfillment of all the promises. Be that one and that only but that's where we are in Kings. And it's interesting because starting in First Kings chapter 12, excuse me, in 2 Kings chapter 12, we actually get a string of, of relatively good kings. It's interesting because in the accounts of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, every single one of the kings of the northern kingdom are evaluated as evil in the book of Kings. There's two that probably are a little less evil than the others, Jehu. As you're reading the story of Jehu in 2 Kings 9 and 10, you think, well, he was pretty zealous for the Lord. Is he going to be evaluated as a good king? But ultimately, in the end, he is not. But he certainly probably came the closest. And then it's interesting because the last king, the king that we're going to read about in 2 Kings 17, Hosea, is probably also the closest to a good king that the northern kingdom ever had. But ultimately, he also is evaluated as being evil. So as you're reading the account of the northern kingdom, every single king ultimately is evaluated as being evil and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. But in the southern kingdom, there were stretches where there were some good kings. And in fact, beginning in 2 Kings chapter 12 and working its way through 2 Kings chapter 15, we have a series of four good kings. Jehoash, Amaziah, Azariah, also known as Uzziah, and Jotham. And these are a series of father and son and father and son, and each one of them ultimately are evaluated as doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In doing right in the eyes of the Lord. But it's interesting because for each one of them, there is a great exception that is given. So let's have a word of prayer And then we'll look at this great exception that is given to each one of these four good and godly kings. Heavenly Father, as always, we want to thank you so much for this new day that you have given to us, this new opportunity to be together as your people, people who are called by the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for leaving us your word. And we thank you, Lord God, that your word is perfect And your word is everything that we need to know and understand, to love you, to worship you, to serve you. And so we thank you for the account of scripture. Lord, we thank you particularly this morning for the stories and the prophecies and the poetry of the Old Testament. And Father, we thank you that ultimately all of that leaves us wanting something more. All of that leaves us a bit disappointed and fairly frustrated. We thank you, Lord, that that was your perfect intention because the Old Testament leaves us longing for your Son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world. And so even now, as we take some time to look at 2 Kings, we pray, Lord God, that that would put in us an incredible appreciation for just how fortunate we are to live on this side Of Jesus coming. May we never, ever, ever sell short how amazingly blessed we are to live on this side of Christ's coming into the world. Things that the Old Testament saints longed, longed for and yet did not live to see. And we pray particularly, Father, that you would give us your wisdom, that you would give us your heart Because, Lord, as we are reading your account of the histories of Israel and Judah, we want to rightly understand what you are telling us. We want to rightly understand the message of your word. And finally, Father, we pray that because of this time that we are spending together right now, we pray, Lord God, that each one of us would be different, that each one of us would be changed by you, would be changed by your word, would be changed by the power of your Holy Spirit speaking to each one of us. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. So 2 Kings chapter 12, looking particularly at verse 3, and this is the reign of Jehoash, again, a good king. 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 3. The high places, however, were not removed. And the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Jumping ahead to 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 4. Evaluating the reign of Amaziah, another good and godly king. The high places, however, were not removed. And the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Sounds fairly familiar. Jumping ahead another chapter, 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 5, evaluating the reign of the good king, Azariah, also known as Uzziah. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Jumping to the end of chapter 15, verse 35, Again, now looking at the reign of the godly king, Jotham, uh, verse 35. It says, he did what was right, excuse me, taking in verse 34. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. But the high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. And Jotham rebuilt the upper gate of the temple of the Lord. Now after this string of four good and godly kings we have Ahaz who was a wretch of a man and let's look at 2nd Kings chapter 16 verse 4 Not only did he allow the high places to remain but according to 2nd Kings 16:4 he offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree So as the author of 2 Kings, the human author of 2 Kings is giving us this historical account. There is a repeated drumbeat over and over and over again. As the southern kingdom is coming to its end, as the northern kingdom is coming to its end, there is this repeated phrase. Even the good kings, even the godly kings continue to fail in one significant aspect. The high places remained. The high places were not removed and the good kings didn't remove them and the evil king Ahaz actually himself went there and offered sacrifices and burned incense. Now for us if you simply were to hear the phrase high place or the high places that may not make a lot of sense to us but obviously as the Lord wants us to understand The history of his people, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, he wants us to understand the high places. Because as he is giving his perfect evaluation of even the good and godly kings, he is repeatedly saying, but they allowed the high places to remain. They allowed the high places to remain. To understand this a little bit better, we need to go back to 1 Kings. I realize we're jumping around a lot. Hopefully you're able to do that, and I think Carl is going to put all of these verses up behind us. But going back to the beginning of the reign of Solomon, the beginning of the reign of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, the temple has not yet been built. And so this is what the Lord says in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. It says, the people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. And Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. So again, even as the story of Kings is just beginning to unfold, All the way back in 1 Kings chapter 3, the high places are taking a central place in God's telling of this history. And even though Solomon loved the Lord, and even though Solomon built the Lord a temple, and even though there were many things about Solomon in the early years of his reign that were incredibly pleasing to the Lord, even then he was tripping up. And even he also was sacrificing on the high places. What makes it even more interesting is that when the Lord appeared to him later in chapter 3, when the Lord said, Solomon, I will give you whatever you ask for, Solomon was actually worshiping at one of the high places. In fact, he was worshiping at the greatest of the high places in Gibeah, which is kind of surprising because throughout the Lord is roundly condemning the kings and the people that either encouraged worship at the high places, allowed worship at the high places, themselves participated in worship at the high places, and yet, as Solomon is beginning his reign, the Lord is willing to appear to him at this high place. Well, we'll get to that a little bit later, but that's part of the challenge. But we're given a much clearer evaluation of Solomon and the high places in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 7. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 7. Now, obviously, we're quite a few chapters later, so this is now where Solomon is beginning to walk an incredible compromise. Remember, Solomon starts off very well. He ends very, very poorly. So in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 7, it says, On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of Of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. So, even though Solomon was the one that had been given the incredible privilege by the Lord to build him a place, to build him a temple, to build a, a, a structure in which his glory would reside, a place on this planet where God would be present in a way that he was not present anywhere else. God had given that incredible privilege to Solomon. Remember, it had been in David's heart. But the Lord said, no, David, it's not for you. It'll be for your son, Solomon. And Solomon does that. He builds the temple, and it was glorious. It was spectacular. The chapters of of 1 Kings that describe it to us impress us with just how incredible a structure it was. And the glory of God fills it as a thick cloud, In fact, so thick, even the priests who were sacrificing there had to stop and fall down. That's what Solomon was able to accomplish. And yet, in the end of his life, he committed incredible acts of compromise. And he established high places for Chemosh and Molech and the other detestable gods of the nations all around. And so obviously, we are beginning to understand why the high places were such an abomination to the Lord. And why even the good kings are are dinged in their godly evaluation because they did not remove the high places. And so let's now jump to 2 Kings chapter 17. And unfortunately, 2 Kings chapter 17 is a very disheartening chapter. It actually describes the end of the northern kingdom. And it's actually one of the longest and one of the most explicitly evaluatory chapters of 2 Kings. God goes into great detail to explain not only what happened to the northern kingdom, but why it happened. So let's take this time now to read from 2 Kings 17, beginning in verse 5. It said, The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in uh, Hala, in Gozan, on the Habor River, and in the towns of Medes. So this is the end of the northern kingdom. Assyria comes in, destroys Samaria, takes the, Samaria, the, the, the citizens of Samaria into captivity. And, of course, this is where we get the name Samaritan from. Samaritans were those who were part Jew and part Gentile in their heritage, and it came from the Assyrian captivity, the Assyrian deportation of the northern kingdom of Israel. Because what we're going to see is Assyria is going to profoundly mix things up. Of course, there would have been some Jews who remained in the northern kingdom. Most were taken elsewhere. There were other Gentiles that were brought to inhabit the northern kingdom. And so the Samaritans became mixed in their ethnicity, partly Jewish, partly Gentile. So when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, this is her ancestry. She ultimately could trace her ancestry to the northern kingdom of Israel. The capital of northern kingdom was Samaria, but to that Gentile... Uh, inclusion in terms of race and and ethnicity. But let's pick it up in verse 7. It says, All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of Egypt. Who had brought them out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Egypt. God had been so good to them. We just got through studying the book of Exodus. God had been so good to them. There was nothing that He had not done for them. And so, even as we are reading the account of them being carried into captivity, we are reminded God had been so good to them. But they worshipped other gods. And they followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all of their towns. They set up the sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense to the nations as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and they were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers, and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols, and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, and although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do, and they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God, and made for themselves Two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry host and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They, sacrificed, they practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. What an incredibly devastating evaluation of the people that God had done more for than any other nation on the planet. Remember in Exodus chapter 19, after Israel has been delivered from their bondage in Egypt, the Lord says, of all the nations on the world, I have chosen you. I have chosen you. You are to be for me a nation of priests. You are to be for me my unique possession. in all of the planet." There is no nation that I have chosen, that I have loved, that I have set apart in the way that I have chosen and loved and set you apart. That was the nations of Israel's Independence Day. That was their July 4th. That was their birthday. And look at what God had declared over them. What an incredible declaration the Lord had made. And so we should be feeling just the heartbreak the heartbreak of the verses that we just read. Century after century after century had unfolded. And God had given the people of God so many opportunities. Look at all of the prophets that he had sent to them. Look at how many times he he called them back to himself. You think of the, the passionate words of the prophet Hosea that just expresses just the unimaginable love that the Lord had for his people and yet how furious their sin made him. Hosea is one of the most incredibly profound books of the the prophets because of that passionate, passionate look we get into the Lord's heart. These people that he had loved so perfectly, yet continually turning their back on him. How could he give them up? That's what he declares in Hosea. How can I give you up? How can I give you up? And yet, their sin continued to be a stench in his nostrils, a phrase that the Old Testament uses. And so, here again, we have that that same problem cropping up, and amongst the list of just horrific and abominable things that the northern kingdom have done, we see the high places. The high places. And we see here that the high places were not just, you know, occasionally present or hard to find looking more closely at verse 9 looking more closely at verse 10 it says they built high places in every city it says that they made sacrifices to the foreign gods on every high hill and under every green tree so the word there that i want us to take note of first is every in every city they built a high place a place for a foreign god to be worshipped. On every high hill, under every green tree, these high places, these these places of idol worship, these places where other gods were being given prominence over the Lord, they were not hard to find. If you were walking around the kingdom of ancient Israel, you would have seen these things everywhere. Everywhere. You would have seen them everywhere. In every city. From tower to fortified gate. On every high hill. Under every green tree. There was an opportunity to worship a God other than the Lord. They were not hard to find. They were easily accessible. They were readily available. These places of false worship these places of gross idolatry. And I think isn't the same true for us today. As we consider the idolatry of ancient Israel and ancient Judah, we must, of course, consider the idolatry of our culture in the year 2022. And just like in the ancient nation of Israel, some 2,900 years ago. Just the same with us today. It's not hard to find idols. It's not hard to find places where someone or something other than the Lord is worshipped. Unfortunately, this is readily accessible and we find it everywhere. We find it everywhere. It's impossible for us to live our lives in this country, in this city, in this time and not find idolatry everywhere. And we need to hear the Lord's evaluation. There's a verse there where it says, and Israel did things in secret. So they were actually kind of ashamed of some of the things that they were doing. And they tried to hide it. They tried to hide what they were doing. You may think of the prophet Ezekiel. Even though he was in captivity in Babylon in a vision of the Lord, he was taken into the temple of the Lord. And he saw just the horrific abominations that had been placed in the temple of the Lord. If you are not familiar with that, I encourage you to read the early chapters of Ezekiel. So Israel was even trying to do things in secret, thinking those things could be hidden from the Lord. Well, our culture now is doing less and less in secret. We are a culture that is just brazenly indulging idolatry. We're becoming more and more proud. We're becoming more and more excited about the godless things that we are doing, about the the other-than-God idols that we are worshiping. Very little is being done in secret. Very little is being hidden. And in some sense, that's an advantage for us because it gives us an opportunity to see clearly all of the places of idolatrous worship. It gives us an opportunity to see clearly how readily available, how completely accessible, and how vastly numerous these modern-day high places are. Because just as in ancient Israel, we find them in every city. We find them on every high hill. We find them under every green tree. And our culture is becoming less and less ashamed of their idolatry. They're becoming less and less ashamed of the things that they are worshiping other than the Lord. And really, that's what the high places were as we saw when Solomon built the high places. He built the high place to Chemosh, a pagan god. He built a high place to Molech, a pagan god. And there are a couple of passages in the Old Testament where we are given a glimpse into the pagan pantheon that existed in the ancient world. We're not told a lot about them because we are not to be overly interested in them. We are not to be overly distracted by them. But there was simply... A number of choices if you wanted to worship in the ancient world. And so the same thing is going on today. As far as I know, I've never met anyone who's worshiping Chemosh. I've never met anyone who's worshiping Molech or Dagon or any of the other pagan gods of the Old Testament. But everyone is continuing to worship, and everyone is continuing to worship something or someone. And we need to understand that we are living in a culture that is completely immersed in idolatry. There are high places everywhere. And there are opportunities to worship other than the Lord at every turn that we make. That was part of the challenge that Israel faced. What we see, of course, in these high places is we see the corrupted form of worship of the nations. Remember, Israel was to be different. The Lord had called Israel out of Egypt. The Lord had called Israel to be different than the Canaanites whose land they were going to possess. Israel was called to be different from the nations that would surround them. They were to be different than the Edomites and the Moabites and the Hittites and all of those people, the Philistines and the Arameans, the nations that they were constantly encountering. They were to be different because what we see at the high places is this was what the world around Israel was doing. And we see that in 2 Kings chapter 17 in verse 8. It was the way of the nations. In verse 11, they were like the nations, And so again, we've got to understand that God has placed us in the midst of a world system that is corrupt in their worship, that is absolutely perverted in what they are giving their heart to and what they are giving their devotion to and what they are giving their time and energy to. And even though God has placed us in this world, God has placed us in this culture, He doesn't want us to to go hide in a monastery. He doesn't want us to wish that we were born a hundred years ago or that we didn't have to live in this time. God has intentionally placed us in this time for his good purpose, for his redemptive purpose. But we need to understand that there is a complete and total corrupt, perverted, ultimately demonic world system of worship. That is what is going on. And we as Christians, we cannot bury our heads in the sand. And we cannot say things are not as bad as they are. We don't need to wring our hands in despair. There, of course, is ultimately hope. But right now, because of what we are looking at in Scripture, we are looking at a fairly demoralizing truth. And the truth is, just as in Old Testament Israel, we are living in a culture that is filled with high places. And these high places are the absolutely corrupted version of worship that exists in the world. That's what we are living in. That's what we are living in. Think of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, walking around the city of Athens. And he says, you know, men of Athens, I see that you are very religious because you have A pagan altar, you have an idol to every god under the sun. You even have an altar to the unknown god. And of course, he used that to launch into one of the most incredible apologetic sermons of the book of Acts. So even some hundred years later, in a totally different empire, in the city of Athens, there was incredible idolatry. Well, again, we today are not living in a time that is any different. Now again, chances are, You're not going to find the number of graven images that were present in the ancient world. You're not going to find the same number of idols carved of wood or stone or gold or silver. Of course, those still do exist. You still can go to places of pagan worship and see images cast in silver and bronze and wood and stone. But I would say the idolatry that we are encountering regularly in this culture rarely takes a physical form like that. You don't see people bowing down to a block of wood. You don't see people bowing down to a carved piece of stone. But the idolatry is there. And we need to understand that this is what the world will continually practice. This is what the world will continually do. They will continue to worship at the high places. They will continue to worship what is not the Lord. And as followers of Jesus, we simply need to understand this is where he has placed us. This is where he has placed us. This is where he wants us to love him. This is where he wants us to serve him. This is where he wants us to live out our days for him. And so we need to understand these things. It's interesting because there's a phrase that's used a couple of times on every high hill and under every green tree. Well, why the high places? Why build an idol? Why build a place of, of, of pagan worship? Why build it on the top of a hill? Why build it under a green tree? Well, because in the ancient world, they had this idea that the gods were up there. And so they figured if they get as high up there as they could, they would be closer To their God. So the reason why the high places, the reason why the top of a hill or the top of a mountain was oftentimes the place of pagan worship was because they felt like if they could get up to the top of the mountain, they were closer to the God that they were trying to worship. In fact, some ancient religions actually believed that the God resided on the top of the mountain. So they actually believed if they went up to the top of the mountain, they were actually entering into the very place that that God was living. And so that's why the high places were one of the first choices to build one of these pagan worship sites. Under every green tree, this also tapped into something that was absolutely central to every ancient person. A green tree is a tree that's doing well. A green tree is a tree that is luxurious. A green tree has full leaf and will produce full fruit. A green tree is a fertile tree. And in the ancient world, fertility was everything. You see in passing the devastating impact of a drought. You see in passing the devastating impact of a famine on the accounts of the Old Testament. Because in the ancient world, fertility was everything. If you couldn't have children, your life was threatened. If you didn't have livestock that were reproducing, your life was threatened. If you didn't have crops each season, your life was threatened. we We don't have anything like that in our modern culture. In the ancient world, fertility was everything. It was the difference between life and death. No children, you were probably done. Livestock that were not reproducing, you were probably done. Crops that were not growing, you were probably done. So what did the ancient world do? The ancient world did everything they could to beseech the gods to bless them with fertility. So go to a fertile place. Go to a place where there is a green tree. Go to a place where a tree is flourishing and beseech a god and ask for fertility. Whether you were asking for children Asking for livestock, asking for crops. And this is why you see one of the most perverted aspects of pagan worship. Because they are mentioned again just in passing in the Old Testament. Prostitutes, both male and female, at these high places, at these cult Places where the pagan gods were worshiped. Because if you had sex with a male prostitute at a shrine, or if you had sex with a female prostitute at the shrine, you were beseeching the gods to give you fertility. And that's why you see, again, just a passing reference to these individuals. Because the Lord never spends too much time on these things, because they're so detestable. They're so abominable in His sight. But you're like, well, why would you go to a place of worship and have sex with a prostitute? Because of fertility. Fertility was everything. So when you hear that phrase, under every green tree, what the Lord is reminding us of is this is the completely bankrupt way that the unbelieving world thinks. This is the completely bankrupt way that the unbelieving world thinks. And God wants us to understand that not just for ancient Israel. Why is he he giving us this glimpse into ancient Israel? Of course, so that we can understand what Israel faced and how Israel failed. But because he wants us to understand the idolatry of the age in which we are living. He wants us to understand that completely corrupt system of worship that the world is embracing wholeheartedly that our culture is embracing daily. The Lord wants us to recognize the high places of American culture. The Lord wants us to recognize that, that, that pursuit of fertility, that pursuit of life, that pursuit of security that our world is going after. Because the idols may be different and the means of worshiping these idols may be different, but the goals are the same. Security. Prosperity. Life, abundance. These are the things that the ancient world were going after. These are the things that modern America is going after. They're going after it in a different way. The idols are not the same, but the goals are the same. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to absolutely do everything we can to understand the time and the culture in which God has placed us. We need to see the high places. We need to recognize the high places. Of course, we need to despise the high places. We need to turn from the high places. We need to do what we can to encourage others to abandon the high places. But we will not do that effectively if we don't understand where the high places are, if we don't understand what is being worshipped there, and if we don't understand how the world is worshipping there. And so we need to understand these basic goals of security and prosperity and life. These are the things that ancient Israel wanted and the world around them wanted as well. These are things that... Modern America wants as well. But how are they going after it? How are they pursuing it and leaving the Lord on the sideline? So every high hill and under every green tree was part of how God was revealing to his people and to us that sinful pursuit of the world around Israel. It's interesting because what we see and what we know is that idolatry is a completely worthless system of worship idolatry is a completely worthless system of worship we may think of the prophet Isaiah in some of the chapters in the early 40s 42 43 44 where he absolutely despises and mocks the idolater and the idol And so what what God reminds us is idolatry is a completely useless system of worship. And we as followers of Jesus, we have to recognize that. We have to recognize that it promises so much and in the end gives nothing. Idolatry promises so much And in the end, it gives nothing. In fact, what is the ultimate result of idolatry? Well, we just read it. It's devastation. It's captivity. It's slavery. It's death. So initially, and on the surface... A system of idolatrous worship seems to offer so much, so much joy, so much pleasure, so much comfort, so much satisfaction, and yet it is completely worthless in what it ultimately provides. If I just indulge my greed, if I just indulge my lust, if I just indulge my anger, if I just indulge my pride, if I just indulge my self-righteousness, it'll feel so good and it'll be so satisfying. That is the absolute deception of idolatry. Initially, it looks so good. Initially, it looks so satisfying. It, It appeals to that flesh that still lingers, unfortunately, in us. But idolatry, all it can offer, all it can offer is 2 Kings 17. All idolatry can offer us is devastation, captivity, slavery, and death. You see, that's what God wants to do. God wants to strip away that deceptive veneer of idolatry. There's no doubt the idols in the ancient world were beautiful. They were made by master craftsmen of the most precious materials that they could possibly find. Gold and silver and stone and wood. I mean, you would see them in museums of archaeology today. And there's no doubt, I mean, the appeal of, of going to a place of worship and indulging your carnal sexual desires and, and possibly receiving the blessing of, of a fruitful crop or multiple cows. I mean, that, that was an incredible appeal on the surface the system of idolatrous worship in the ancient world was so appealing. It was so appealing. And today, it's no different. The idols that our culture worships, the idols that our culture worships, on the surface, they are so appealing. They are so attractive. They seem to promise so much. They seem to offer so much, so much joy, so much peace, so much security, so much life, so much whatever. But all they can give us, all they can give us is 2 Kings 17. That's all an idol and its system of worship can give us. Devastation, captivity, slavery, and death. And you see, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to set us free. Idolatry brings slavery. Jesus He came to set us free. He came to set us free. A culture and a world that is wholeheartedly embracing a system of idolatrous worship and unknowingly enslaving themselves in the process. Jesus has come. Jesus has come for them. Jesus has come to set them free. You know, every now and then, in the book of Kings, and there's one on the horizon, Josiah, you've got a good king that was just maniacal almost in his destruction of the idols. You think of maybe Moses, when he comes down and he finds that golden calf. He doesn't just put it to the side. He obliterates it. He crushes it and then he puts it in the water, and then he makes the other people drink it. Now, why does he do that? Not because he wants them to get sick to their stomach. Because he takes what constituted that idol, he grinds it into dust, he puts it in the water. The people drink it. Well, what's going to happen to that idol water that they drink? It's going to come out as urine and defecation, and it's going to be completely unclean. That's why Moses does that. Moses makes the last little remnant of that idol completely unclean and completely untouchable. Josiah, you're going to see him. He's going to do the same thing. He's going to obliterate the idols. He's not just going to remove them. He's going to crush them. He's going to grind them into dust. He's going to pull up the bones of the priests and the false prophets who endorsed their worship, and he's going to burn them. You're going to have this incredible account of the zeal of Josiah. But you see why? Because Josiah understood that an idolatrous system of worship, all it can do is enslave all it can do is make captives. All it can do is bring devastation. All it can do is bring death. And Jesus is the ultimate idol smasher. Jesus is the ultimate idol smasher. And how does he do it? Well, in part, he does it by absolutely demanding that he and he alone be worshipped. He absolutely declares that you can worship nothing and you can worship no one except me and you see that's what make made in the ancient world and makes today that's what makes idolatry and the idolatrous systems of worship that's why God uses words like abomination and detestable and disgusting why because they take away the worship that he and he alone deserves I am very small. I am very finite. I have a limited amount of time. I have a limited amount of energy. I have a limited amount of devotion. And the Lord asks for every bit of it. Every bit of my limited time, the Lord says, is mine. Every bit of my limited devotion, the Lord says, it belongs to me. Every bit of my limited strength and energy, the Lord says, it belongs to me. Why is idolatry so detestable to the Lord? because it steals from him what is rightly his. If I'm splitting my devotion between an idol and the Lord, I'm taking from the Lord what rightly belongs to him. If I'm building a temple to the Lord, but if I'm constructing a high place to Chemosh and Molech, I am stealing from the Lord what rightfully belongs to him. And this is why idolatry makes the Lord furious. It makes the Lord furious because it steals from Him the worship, the devotion, the dedication that only He, that only He is worthy of. And so when I worship an idol, I am completely and totally dishonoring the Lord. I am stealing from the Lord what belongs to Him. So not only am I enslaving myself, not only am I making myself a captive, not only am I bringing death and devastation into my life and the life of people around me, but I'm stealing from the Lord. I'm taking from the Lord what rightly belongs to him. And this is why the Lord hates idolatry. It's worthless. There's a couple of interesting words that the Lord uses in first, excuse me, in second Kings 17. In verse 12, he says, you know, you should not worship idols. There's a, a, a word that's used there that is used other places to describe idols. It's a word in, in Hebrew that can mean a couple of different things. In its verbal form, it actually means to roll, like to roll a ball or to roll up. That's how it's used. Oftentimes, the noun form of this talks about something that's rolled up like a ball. And oftentimes, what this word uses Is used to describe is dung pellets, because if you see some you know rabbit droppings or squirrel droppings or something like that, they're they're little balls. They're dung pellets. In fact, if you look at uh, Ezekiel chapter four, when Ezekiel is going to have to cook his food on dung, that's the word that's used there. These dung pellets. So it's 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 likely the word that is used in Second Kings chapter seventeen verse twelve is actually describing the idol as a pile of poop as dung pellets. That's how how effective that idol is going to be in helping you. And so you you know, and that's why I'm not going to go over a long list today, you know the idols that tug at your heart. You've, You've heard this as a believer for years. All of us are very familiar, or we should be, with the idols that tug at our heart. Well, when you're, when, we're, when you're really getting tempted by it, when you really are, are wanting to bow down and worship at that, that pagan altar of your idol, God wants you to, to see it as, as a pile of crap. I mean, excuse my language. That's how he wants you to see it. And you see, if, if you let the Lord strip away that deceptive veneer, if you let the Lord strip away and show you in, in all clarity and truth what that idol really is, then you don't want to worship it anymore. You're like, what am I doing? I'm I'm giving myself to a pile of dung. I'm giving my heart, I'm giving my devotion to excrement. Is that really how I want to live my life? Is that really what I want to do with the, the limited time and energy and devotion that the Lord has given me? Do I want to bow down in front of a pile of poop? Is that what I want to do? That's what idolatry is. That's what idolatry is. There's another word that he uses in verse 15. NIV translates it as worthless. It says these things are worthless. They worshiped worthless things. You actually know that word. You don't know it, that you know it. But it's the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. What does the preacher, what does Kohelet cry? Worthless, worthless. Everything is worthless. Meaningless, vanity. Different translations have different things. But that's the exact same word that is used in 2 Kings 17.5. Worthless. Worthless. Meaningless. Empty. Void. Of no value. That's what an idol is. That's how God wants us to see it. God doesn't want us to see it as that thing that is so deeply satisfying to our flesh. He doesn't want us to see it as that thing that's, that's so incredibly tempting that we want to indulge in. Whether, you know, and again, we all know the idols that we worship. And, I, and I'm not going to go over the long list because you know what you struggle with. But God wants us to see it for what it really is. It's meaningless. It's worthless. It's emptiness. It's nothingness. And then look at the most devastating aspect, I think, of 2 Kings chapter 17. The second part of verse 15. As Israel worshipped what was worthless... What happened to them? They became worthless. The word that's used there is actually just the verb form of the word worthless. And here is one of the most significant principles that the Lord establishes for us. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. It's such an incredibly simple principle that God establishes. So if you worship a worthless idol, you become worthless. If you worship something that is not the Lord, you will become like what you worship. See, God, God loves us too much To pull his punches. He loves us too much. He loves us too much. To hold back truth. And he looks at us with such incredible compassion. Compassion that all eternity will not be enough time for us to fully understand. He looks at us with this incredible compassion. And he sees us worshiping these worthless idols and he knows what's going to happen he knows that we are going to become like that idol that we are worshiping and he loves us too much to have that go unaddressed he loves us too much not to bring that up that's why chapters like second Kings 17 are in the word they are meant to rattle us they are meant to shake us they are meant to disturb us because God wants us to understand the threat of idolatry is real and the consequences of idolatry are dire and he loves us too much not to speak of these things. If we choose to worship what is worthless, if we choose to worship a pile of dung, if we choose to worship what seems on the surface to offer so much and give so little, unfortunately, we will become like what we worship the way the prophet isaiah said it is if you worship a block of wood you will become like a block of wood so whatever it is that we are tempted to worship whatever idol that we are tempted to bow down and give our heart and devotion to god is giving us a very very stern fatherly warning what you worship you will become like but I don't want to end on such a dire note because the flip side of it is just as true. If you choose to worship Jesus, what do you become like? You become like him. Isn't that glorious? If we choose to reject the high places if we choose to fight with every fiber of our being not to bow down and worship the idols of our culture if we choose daily to say no to those pet idols that tempt our hearts so strongly and if instead we choose to worship Jesus We become like him. We become like him. As bad as the first part of this message is, the good part is so much better. It's like what the Apostle Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds, all the more. Yes, of course, if you worship a worthless idol, you're going to become like that worthless idol. But... If you worship Jesus you will become like him. That's so good. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 we're going to end with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes and we who with unveiled faces all reflect or all behold the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness from glory to glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we behold him, as we fix our eyes on him, as we come together to worship him, Him, as we pursue Him individually on our own, as we make it our chief goal every day to bow our knee to Him, we are being changed. We are being changed from glory to glory. We are becoming like the one we are worshiping. What an incredible opportunity. Jesus invites every one of us, come. Be like me. Come be like me. Fall at my feet and worship me alone. Give all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength to me. Have no rivals, have no high places, have no idolatrous altars. Come worship me in spirit and in truth. And from glory to glory, you will become like me. From glory to glory, you will become like me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you, you love us enough to give us a hard word. And Lord, definitely, the captivity of Israel and the captivity of Judah, they are, they are hard histories to read. After you had been so good, after you had done everything, And after you had been patient for hundreds and hundreds of years, finally their sin reached the limit and your righteous judgment had to fall. And over and over and over again you warned them. And over and over again they fell into the same trap, worshiping something other than you, giving their heart, giving their devotion to someone other than you. And Father, we thank you so much that you have reminded us of just how worthless idols are, that you've reminded us just how worthless it is to worship them. You've reminded us, Lord God, that even though they are everywhere, everywhere we turn in our culture, there is an idol that is being worshipped. You have reminded us that they are absolutely powerless to offer anything good. And you have reminded us, Lord, that all they can really bring is slavery and bondage and death and thank you Lord that you give us you give us something so much better you give us Jesus and you invite us to worship him you invite us to confess with our mouths that he is Lord you invite us to bow the knee to him and him only you invite us to have our eyes open to see that he is with us. You invite us, Lord God, to gaze upon him and to give our heart to him and give our devotion to him. And you promise us, as we do that, you are changing us. You are changing us, Lord, from glory to glory. As we worship Jesus, we are becoming like him. Until one day, Lord, that work that you are starting in each of us, will come to completion. And we will be like him. So thank you, Father. Thank you for this challenge. And Father, finally, I just pray that you would help us, even as we were praying on Friday night, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to offer freedom, offer freedom to those who are bound in idolatrous worship. Jesus, you came to set captives free. And there are so many, Lord, in our culture that are bound and enslaved by the idols they are worshiping. God, help us to be your representatives and to offer that freedom that can only come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to go after an idolatrous world. Help us to go after the idol worshipers to offer them that salvation and freedom that can only come in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, it is in your name and your name alone that we pray these things. Amen. <laughs>